Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Sunday Schooled Podcast, where we take Sunday sermon and we uh, use the weekly sermon curriculum and unpack the sermon a little bit more, talk about it in a little more detail. If you have not yet listened to this week's message, go back to the episode right before this, listen to that, or go to the YouTube channel, Canton uh, Evangelical Free Church of Canton uh, on YouTube, and watch the message, and then come back to this, as you're just going to gain a better understanding of what we've already talked about, and it will expand further your understanding of this text. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 10 and 11, um, primarily in Mark chapter 11, and uh, unpacking this on uh, this Palm Sunday message, and uh, the first of two messages focused on Jesus as the servant king. Now, specifically, this message entitled, Welcoming the Servant King, as Jesus uh, triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. And uh, so as we begin this discussion, uh, kind of the opening question to think about or to begin processing is when you think of an earthly king, what attributes come to mind? Ooh, a guy with a long neck. Saul, I'm stealing that from you. <laughs> you have to explain it further because some people are going, what in the world? I don't think I have to. I Are think they should just go back a couple podcasts and listen. <laughs> read, read your Bible, and you'll find out who this long neck guy is. Certain First Samuel. It's true. It does describe him as having a long distance between his head and his shoulders. <laughs> I mean. Is true, and it seemed to be something that stood out. That was part of his appearance that made people go, "Oh, he's a king. He's a kingly man." I, I don't know more than that. That's not honestly one of the first things I would think of. To be, to be honest, and go, "Oh, look at that guy. He's got a long neck. He would be a good king." I probably wouldn't have previously, but now I feel. Now it's all you think about. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I think culturally, if we think just secular culture, when people think of a king or a ruler, they think of someone who is unapologetic. Uh-huh. Like they have uh, their goal in mind for what can be done and what can happen, and they're going to do it regardless of what happens in order to do it. And we tend to look at that and almost go, man, that person leads well. Or... Uh, uh, another thing I think about is someone who's uh, been successful outside of being a, a ruler or a leader. And so we automatically assume that person's going to be successful as a king or a ruler or a leader of some kind. Um, those would be a couple I've, off the top of my head that I think of. Um, maybe two coming from a family of royalty would be something... Like if you if you follow patterns of earthly king, well, the people in their family were this way, so naturally we assume that person's going to be uh, that way. I don't know. 
Uh, I'd be interested to know what other people are thinking as far as attributes of a king. Mm-hmm. Email us. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. Just to hear. And by us, I mean Matt. <coughs> uh, Email Matt. By Matt, you mean the church office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> office at cantonyfree.com. If you have topics that you want us to cover or go over or questions or further insight, we'd love to hear from you. I'm just done with emails this week, that's all. Uh, that's okay. Yeah. So, uh, in the scope of this, the reason we're asking this question is because when we look at the, the context and all that's happening in uh, Mark chapter 11, specifically as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, uh, it's really interesting to think through what's going through people's minds as they're considering all that's happening in this moment. Because clearly... When we, when we look at Mark 11 and we see that people are gathering, they're, they're shouting, they're cheering, they're laying their coats and these branches on the ground as Jesus is coming in, there's an excitement that you can, you can understand is happening in the midst of Jesus coming into the city. And, and we, have to, we have to wonder if we're, if we're really intently reading our Bibles to understand more of what's, be, what's happening. We have to question why is there this level of excitement? Uh, why are people responding in this way. <clears throat> now, one of the actually interesting things to think about here is uh, is that they're actually timeline-wise, this is happening uh, not super long after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. I believe. So one of the one of the really interesting things about this is so this account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Is in it's actually in all four gospel accounts: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in Matthew 21, uh, 1 through eleven. It's Mark eleven, which we're in this week. Luke nineteen twenty eight through forty four, and John twelve twelve through nineteen. Um, so, uh, one of the really uh, neat ways, if you if you want to look at this from a, a whole perspective, is uh, get on your computer or on your phone and go to each account of this, copy it. And uh, like put it in separate Word documents and print them out and read them side by side to get the full scope. Because you have different perspectives that are happening as this is all taking place. And different pieces come together in the whole of all that's going on based in each one of the gospel accounts. And so you, you see little glimpses. Uh, some, some pieces of that weren't in, as important to certain gospel writers as other pieces were. So you get the whole scope of this if you read uh, kind of the Gospels merged together to gain the whole picture of what's recorded about this specific event. And one of the things you may not recognize is that this is actually happening uh, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And so uh, in, in that, in that uh, story, uh, Lazarus has, has died um, and uh, Jesus comes... Uh, ultimately raises him from the dead, and then th- there's obviously people who hear about this and are astounded. <laughs> they're, they're astounded at this. Uh, and this was something kind of distinct as part of uh, Jesus' ministry that you don't see happening in other places. Um, you don't see uh, uh, other people walking around healing or raising people from the dead. This, this is not a, a common occurrence. And so there's obviously some, you can imagine the conversations taking place as news of this spread across the land. And in fact, in John chapter 12, uh, verse 9, it, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, 
they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, which makes sense. We've heard that this guy raised from the dead, but is he really alive? Um, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here's all these people that maybe were reluctant to really believe there's anything special about Christ. And now uh, they hear this news of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And good, what do they want to do? We, we want to see. We want to not only see Jesus, we want to see this guy that supposedly is raised from the dead. And it apparently stirred up such a crowd and a following that even the, the religious leaders are, are looking to put Lazarus to, dead, uh, to death. Uh, because of all what what the ripple effect that this is causing to happen, <laughs> where people are believing in Jesus as they're witnessing what he's done. And the reason I bring this up is because it's right after this, um, in uh, John chapter 12, verse 12, uh, where it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Um, so, in the scope of this, uh, we often wonder, uh, where did this group of people come from? And we have, to, ha we have to believe that, according to scripture, this group was a group of people that had come to Jerusalem for the feast uh, that was about to take place, which is the feast of Passover. And in the scope of this... Uh, there were also people that had just recently heard about what had taken place with Lazarus, had believed in Jesus, uh, in, in his work and his ministry, but what were they believing about him? That this is really the core of what the challenge was on Sunday. And the, the overarching kind of main theme of Sunday was uh, this reality that the king that we need is often not the king that we want. And Jesus here is entering as king, and the people are believing that he indeed is the one who's going to save them, but uh, what what uh, I argue from the text is that their concept of who he really is is skewed just a little bit. Yeah, and <clears throat> just to contrast the icebreaker question of what we think of when we think of an earthly king, the attributes, if you go to Isaiah 53, 2, this is the description of Jesus, for he grew up like before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So he just, to, to Isaiah's explanation here, is he just looked like just a common normal man. So there was no physical attribute to look at Jesus and know that he's this Messiah King that they're looking for. So it's all these other aspects of what Jesus has done that causes them to to seek him out as as Messiah King. Yeah, it's interesting even to think about uh, previous encounters Jesus had had in his ministry up to this point, where even people in his own town were like, "Wait, isn't this just the carpenter's son?" It, it uh, there was nothing in Jesus' life that people would point to and go. Yes, he is king material. Except for him raising people from the dead. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's where we see this drastic shift, yeah. right? And one of the things I personally was challenged with as I thought about that in studying this last week is how often are we willing to submit to Jesus as king when we see things he does as worthy of him being authority over our life? But then in the other aspects, we just don't act that way. 
And so we praise God whenever things are going the way we think they should be going. We, we worship and glorify Him and say, Jesus is the authority of my life whenever things are going the way we think they should be. But then when things take a turn, as they're about to, as we're in the midst of Holy Week, mm-hmm. I have to wonder how many people who cheered Jesus coming in on the road to Jerusalem were also present at the trial of Jesus when the crowd started yelling, crucify him. Like, think about that. And how quickly uh, can we as as human beings uh, oscillate from fully devoted to uh, the, the kingdom of God to uh, completely turning our back on that and uh, almost walking in unbelief or unfaithfulness? Yeah, and you know, and if you go into John fourteen, um, fourteen eight through eleven, you see uh, an interaction between Philip and Jesus, and Philip's in disbelief. All of them are, and Philip's just like because Jesus just gets done telling him that you know he's the way and the truth and the life, truth and the life, and <clears throat> no one comes to the Father except through him. And Philip's like, well, just show us the Father, and you know, we'll we'll believe you. And Jesus tells him, he's like, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is that's Jesus equating himself. He is God. He is God in flesh. And Philip's like, yeah, that's okay, but like, if you just show him to us, we'll believe you. And Jesus tells him, he's like, you know, I'm telling you all these things so that... Um, he says, yeah, believe in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So he's just, you know, he's saying, if, you know, whether or not you believe what I'm saying... Believe in me based on what I'm doing, and that's what we find with all these these people preparing uh, preparing the the road as he's coming in for the triumphal entry. They they're believing on the account of works. It's not has nothing to do with anything yeah. that Jesus has said. And over and over again, he tells them. You know, there's several, especially in John, there's several instances where Jesus says, you know, I'm telling you these things because later you're gonna you know base for lack of you know I'm just paraphrasing here because later you're gonna think back and be like oh, he said this. This is what he was talking about. Yeah. But they just follow him because he's doing all these things. <clears throat> yeah. And so what we kind of shifting from that, we understand Jesus is entering, that the people are gathering to give you some background on what's happened just before this um, and kind of anticipating what's coming. Uh, we see that Jesus really enters here unexpectedly. Uh, first off, on a donkey, and, and I made a parallel on Sunday to Zechariah 9 in the prophecy. And if you're just reading Mark 11, you don't see that reference directly. But if you, uh, w- one of the commentators I read actually suggested, and you, Caden, you might have some more insight on this too, that uh, the reason that the specifics of that are not spoken of is because Mark's written primarily to Gentiles, not to Jews. Whereas, like, Matthew's Gospel mentions the prophecy specifically in contrast to the primary audience it would have been written to in specific. I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on that or if there's any background as you've studied Mark and looked at some of that. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I know, I know um, looking at Mark, um, you know, we, we commonly attribute Mark as being a transcription from the Apostle Peter. Um, and John Mark is basically acting as a scribe and writing all this down. Um, whether whether it, it took place of with Peter standing there and verbatim dictating these things, or if it's just a recollection of Mark of what things that Peter had told him, as you know, there's a ton of room for debate. But yeah, it was absolutely uh, something written to the Gentiles, and why he didn't include that specific prophecy, 
you know, I'm not sure. I know in John, it's it's like a whole chapter or two before the triumphal entry that Zechariah 9 9 is mentioned. Because um, it was funny when you when you were given the sermon on Sunday, because my family and I are walking through John right now, um, that we'd come across that. Oh no, it was no, it's right in the beginning of the triumphal entry. Sorry, uh, in verse 15 of John 12. As I remember making a note of it, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Yeah, yeah, and um, even even in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 21, in uh, Matthew 21:4, where Jesus gives the instruction to his disciples to go find this donkey, and that's another thing you might notice in Mark, it actually doesn't mention a donkey; it just says colt. And so, if you just read Mark's gospel by itself, you might go, "Wait, wh- where's the donkey?" and I'll say this to people who are listening to this who may be prone to uh, have heard these stories before. If you're speaking with someone who has no knowledge of Scripture and you speak about this, but they read Mark, they're going to wonder, what in the world are you talking about? So you have to think about these things and not just make assumptions based on what you've been taught. Um, But in Matthew, it does say, you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Um, and then in verse 4 of Matthew 21, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Yeah. This this kind of furthers my point on my position that Mark was written first, because Matthew seems to expand upon that. Right. And explain it yeah. as, well, you know, Mark Mark left out this information. And it doesn't create any kind of a contradiction or anything like that. Correct. This is just a different perspective from a different writer. If they were all matching equally, then I would have cause for concern. And so there's not. But it definitely seems, you know, that Matthew and Luke are kind of expanding on, on what took place here. And then you go over to John, and he has, you know, his his point of view as well. So there's there's a lot of dynamics there. And that's why it's super important to read your Bible. I got it in again. Yeah. I got it in again. Yeah. No, it's good. And and so within this prophecy, you have to understand that this would have been spoken hundreds of years before Jesus actually came. And I mentioned on Sunday the intertestamental period. You have to understand a lot of people mm. don't recognize. I actually just had this conversation with a brother in Christ yesterday. When we read our Bible... We, we tend to read it without any concept of time. Yeah. And the conversation I was having with uh, this brother yesterday over lunch was we, we don't often think about how long from when God speaks a promise to when it comes to fulfillment. And my comment back was, yeah, think about, pause and think about a minute for how, uh, about how old our country actually is. It's not that old. It was really young in the scope of history. There's 400 years that go on between Malachi and and the birth of Jesus. 400 years where where history is still happening, but the nation of of Israel as a whole is in oppression. They're in captivity. They're overrun by wicked rulers who desecrate the temple. Who I, I mean, so many things that we just don't think about because we automatically kind of read our Bibles and go, oh, hey, there's a promise of, in Zechariah, and then, what do you know, here's Jesus, and we read it as if it happens within a generation. Yeah. We do the same thing in the Old Testament, too, when we look through, like, the prophets. It, the, the Old Testament, as you flip through, it's not, 
a new set of time frame is happening, flipping from Isaiah to Daniel right. and all these things. Like a lot of those prophets were around the same time same and time in the frame. same city when they when all this was taking place. That's why you see like similar accounts. You're like, well, I thought Isaiah did that. Well, it's because they were both in there serving. If you read the kings that they're under and things like that, it'll put that context in place for you. But yeah, there's a lot of history. I don't think people realize that. Or like look at with David and the Psalms. You know, the son of David was supposed to be the Messiah. And so these people probably potentially looked at Solomon at first and was like, well, there's your son. Why? why he's the king. Why, why is he not saving us? You know, and then look how long from David to Jesus before right. we get, you know, that turn of events there. Correct. And so in Zechariah, I talked as well on Sunday about these the words rejoice and shout and, and the, the intent meaning. And that explanation comes from the, um, uh, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. And I just want to read this excerpt just so you get the context behind this because I, I, I love this description. Um, it says, The term rejoice has the notion of excitement and literally means to twirl. The term shout is used of war cries or loud shouting. Both verbs emphasize the intensity of irrepressible joy that manifests itself not only in leaping but also in loud proclamation. And just to think about the, that prophecy being fulfilled and then the fulfillment of that, the people in Jerusalem right then, they, they literally were recognizing the more Jesus ministered, the more this is taking place. Their belief was that Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. The problem is, in their minds, this was going to be fulfilled earthly. That Jesus in that time frame is going to step in and take over, uh, overthrow the Roman rule of the time, the Caesars that are in place, the oppression, and really restore uh, the temple worship to restore all that uh, they looked back on uh, the law and the prophets and went, this is what we've been longing to happen. This is the uh, the redemption that we've been longing for and convinced that that is indeed going to take place through Jesus, uh, which ultimately uh, makes sense then why they're shouting, literally shouting, save us, save us, as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, and we see Jesus kind of answer that this isn't going to be an earth, earthly thing when he's talking to Pilate. Um, yes, yeah, you're exactly right. John eighteen thirty three through 40, really, is the whole, the whole area. Um where Pontius Pilate's, you know, being super inquisitive of Jesus, and he's like, you know, well, are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus is like, well, you say so, <laughs> you know. And, and then he's like, well, you know, what, you know, kind of explain this thing to me. And and Jesus doesn't answer him. He's like, you know, at first, and he's like, well, my kingdom is not of this world, and just like drops this giant truth bomb on him. And Pilate, depending on which gospel account you're reading, Pilate, his wife had come to him. She'd had a vision about this man. She's like, don't do not do anything. Like, you need to stay out of this. Of course, he doesn't listen to his wife. That's, that's just a little marriage 101 for you right there. If you listen to your wife, you probably won't get in trouble. Um, <laughs> so just throwing that out there. Um, yeah, so the Jesus in that section, go and read that in John. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I just don't. I don't feel comfortable just reading it to you. You need to read your own Bible. <laughs> so that's as good. I'm looking at so it. So what's that passage? Just to reiterate. Uh, that's to be John eighteen thirty three through 
40, really. Just read all of John yeah. 18. Yeah. That's what I like to tell people. Just read the whole chapter. It's really good. That would be, especially this week and Holy Week. Um, yeah. Read that. Re- read read that section of Scripture as we approach uh, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Like, Yeah. Read, read your Bible, about, especially about Holy Week. I Sorry, I hit something on the podcast. Before mm-hmm. I did. But, uh, no, like... Well, that's the thing. Like, that's why we'd pick John when we did, because as we we picked a chapter a day, and then we started Holy Week. It was actually ended up working out the day before uh, the triumphal entry, so Saturday is when we read that section in John. But I wanted it to work out to where we would read the Resurrection yeah. on Resurrection Sunday. So, yeah, there's all kinds <clears throat> of neat little things you can do to line up different events and and things with your scripture reading, and so. There's just something to think about. If you read Luke backwards through December, by the time Christmas hits, you'll, you'll be at the birth. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> It'd be, be pretty cool to read it backwards. So <clears throat> when when the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, honestly, there's probably not many people who recognize, and I'll reiterate this, that this is this is from the Psalms. This is from Psalm 118. This this is not just something they're saying randomly. This would have been something they're, they're, most people would have memorized in their study of the law and the prophets and their schooling and really even taught to sing in anticipation for the fulfillment of God's promise to the nation of Israel. So this was not just random, but would have been, you can imagine, most likely because it was a psalm, People were, were not just shouting this, but were singing this. That It was highly likely that this was a song the people were singing together in unison, where if you can imagine someone's beginning to sing this in anticipation for what Jesus is about to do, and then other people catch on and to, to think about that spreading across a group of people who are recognizing, yes, oh yes, the Messiah, the one who's going to redeem us, the one who's going to save us after so long of longing and waiting for redemption, and that they break out in this song, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This immediately would have resonated with the whole of what Psalm 118 communicates. Um, And Hosanna literally means save us. If you were to look at this word in the Greek language, it's going to point you back to the Hebrew. It's literally from the Psalms, and it's a transliteration over into Greek. And this would not have been a surprising thing to have taken place because if you go back historically in the intertestamental period, when Alexander the Great took over the Persian Empire, he Greek train of thought and education became the standard all across the land. And of course, if you go back further, uh, the nation of Israel taken into Babylonian captivity following the Persians taking over the Babylonians. So they were under Persian rule. That's where Cyrus the Great comes in, the Persian king Cyrus, who allowed the people to come back. Uh, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, the temple being rebuilt, all, all of those things. And then in the intertestamental period is when Alexander the Great defeats the Persians. So Think about the nation of Israel being under the influence of all of this rule. And so one of the first things Alexander the Great had done was that Old Testament law and prophets were translated from uh, the native tongue into Greek, (laughs) which would have been what we know as the Septuagint. 
So you, you have this historical importance that is not outlined in your Bible, but is significant to getting us to what we're seeing happen in Mark chapter 11 and the whole process of Holy Week. Yeah, that's where the whole language of Koine Greek developed. Because Correct. when Alexander took over, he spoke Attic Greek. And so as they expanded this empire, they had to like come up with the lingua franca, the common language. And so now it it morphs into what's called Koine Greek or Common Greek. And that's where the biblical language comes from. So it wasn't, a lot of people misunderstand that. It wasn't just specifically created for the Bible. Correct. It was, that's, it was created Cultural. so everybody from every single end of this kingdom could speak to each other and understand. Right. Yeah. And understand, too, that that's considered an ancient language. Yeah. Like, if you were if you were to go and start speaking Koine Greek, <laughs> yeah. today they look at you weird. Yeah. Because it's not spoken, it's not spoken Greek, it's ri- really written Greek. Mm-hmm as what we see from that time period. So really, to kind of bridge this over, and I want to shift our thought over to more uh, practical, practically how we think about this. Clearly, we can sit here and recognize that people uh, shouting and cheering and, and dancing and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem had a different idea in mind as far as what Jesus was coming to do. But to turn that more personally, what do we often have in mind when we cry that when we cry out the same thing to God? When we say, "God, save us, save us," what what tends to come to mind when we cry out that same thing? Uh, when we really stop and process and ask the question, when when I'm asking God to save me, what am I really asking of Him? Oh, it's all worldly. Expound on that. What do you mean? So, I mean, if we number one, typically, if you are doing anything with God you in that capacity more than likely you've already received salvation you've already you know went through that whole process so now at this point you're, you don't get saved twice you get saved once so if you're asking for save me save me save me it's I'm in this distress I'm in this crisis God I need you I, I need you now let's rub the little bottle and the genie pop out right I wonder you know I've never rubbed my Bible I wonder <laughs> no it doesn't work that way um, but yeah, like that's that's the whole aspect of it is people think that now all of a sudden, oh no, save us. These people were looking for that, but they were also looking for that that spiritual because they knew that this Messiah was going to come and make everything right again, or at least they should have known that. Some of them didn't understand it, and that was because they twisted and changed things around. Um, the Pharisees were very good at that. There was, I'm wanting to say I read something last week that there was like, over like 600 and something different laws that were added to what you see in Leviticus that was from God. So God, God's law wasn't good enough. <laughs> so man had to go and make it better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where this whole Sabbath thing came from with, you know, when Jesus heals the, the invalid that was uh, unable to walk for 30 some years. And they, he gets up and he carries his mat off because Jesus tells him to. And the Pharisees freak out. They're like, why are you working? It's the Sabbath. And he's right. like, because the guy that healed me told, told me to do it. Right. You know, they, they added a bunch. But anyway, I digress. I'm rambling. Yeah, so I think for us to recognize, we fall into the same trap of con- of convincing that when we call out to God and ask for salvation, or we, we call out to Christ and ask him to save us, that our tendency is to have an earthly kingdom in mind rather than an eternal one. And the reality is, uh, I guarantee you, 
and we're going to talk about this more on Sunday's message, Resurrection Sunday, people didn't know what to think after Jesus had died. And uh, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to be looking at the uh, passage in Luke, uh, focusing on the road, the road to Emmaus and these two guys that uh, literally tell Jesus because their eyes are, are shut to who he is. <laughs> and they're like, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. And, and so it becomes clear, like people were devastated because they had a earthly kingdom in mind. If they had had, honestly, if Jesus' disciples had listened to him teach, they would have known ahead of time what was about to happen. Which is the equivalent today of reading your Bible. It is. And yeah. They would have known. And, and the equivalent to that that I see in our modern day and time is when Paul tells Timothy, like, here's what to expect in the, in the last days. That people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, selfish, greedy. And, and then people today are surprised and they're going, what? Why, why, why is this happening? Because it's exactly what Scripture told us is going to happen. In the same way Jesus told his disciples, this is what's going to happen. He actually says that directly in Mark chapter 10. Yep. Where right before they're disputing and arguing about who's going to be the greatest, he says, hey, we're getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. And when we do this, uh, the, the chief priests, the religious leaders, are going to deliver the Son of, the son of Man up <laughs> to, to death. But then he'll rise. He literally goes through the whole yeah. thing with them. Yeah, and he does this multiple times. Yes. And if you if you really if you look at it on the timeline stance of Jesus's ministry being three years, so imagine he's done this multiple times over this because what we have recorded <laughs> right. doesn't mean that he just said it two or three times. And during three years, there's a huge yeah. probability that he repeated a lot of this teaching. So he's probably told them probably ten, twenty, fifty times, "I'm going to die, and I'm going to die in this manner." And they still didn't believe it. I mean, we get you go as far as Thomas going, well, unless he's right here in front of me and I can poke him in the holes, yeah. I'm not going to believe it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we we really have to consider, and and this is the the fourth question on the curriculum. What are some faulty expectations we often have when we surrender our lives to Christ? Oh, that it's just going to be fantastically yeah. easy, and which I mean. It, that's the tricky part of it because it is because you have Jesus to lean on it is super easy it's as easy as fixing your eyes on Jesus yes but it's often difficult to put that into practice and and to root in and be like you know what I know I'm suffering right now but in the end this doesn't matter in, in the moment that's hard to do absolutely but people think that we're going to have this just perfect life and we're just going to be, we're all going to, apparently we're all going to get rich and we're never <laughs> going to struggle. We're never going to be depressed or anything like that. And that's just not true. Jesus tells us because of me, <laughs> you are going to suffer. Yeah. In fact, Paul told Timothy that if anyone seeks to live a godly life, he he will suffer. It's not a, it's not a maybe. Yeah. And Paul, Paul's often, you look at it through all of his epistles, he's going, please pray for me. Pray for me in my suffering, because I am suffering. I'm struggling right now. Yeah. This is Paul. This is like one of the greatest apostles known to man that's wrote half of the New Testament, basically. And this guy is struggling. This guy met Jesus. Yeah, on the road to Damascus. And he's still struggling. So it's no different for us. We're going to struggle. But what was Paul's key difference between us? Paul rooted into Jesus all the harder and all the deeper right. when he was struggling. My grace is sufficient mm -hmm. for you is what Paul recognized that God communicated clearly. Um, 
and so so understanding this we have to we have to stop and ask what what is the king we really want and if it's a king that's going to give us all the earthly pleasures of this world then Jesus is not your king he's not the authority of your life <clears throat> i want the king that came out of the ground that's taken me out of the ground with him and given me unimaginable things yeah because my imagination can get pretty wild and if Jesus can give me unimaginable things I'm game. Yeah, and this is where it intersects with Mark 10. And as Jesus really confronts his disciples and their misunderstanding of what, his purpose. Um, and even to reveal that the disciples struggled with the same earthly view of what what his rule and reign would look like in that time. Uh, where they're, they're wondering, what status am I, ultimately, what status am I going to have with you in eternity? Yeah. And and Jesus at the end of of that conversation in Mark 10 uh uh it's really starting starting verse 43 um it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And and Jesus modeling this and we see this humility and this this recognition that him him as the redeemer was redeeming people eternally not as another king or judge raised up in Israel's history to temporarily bring them out of oppression and that that was the pattern the pattern was that Israel would profane the name of the Lord, they would, in biblical terms, they would whore after other gods and be unfaithful to the Lord. And they would, as a result, fall into captivity in a disciplinary way for God to say, I'm a jealous God. You're, you're going to have no other gods before me. So it's natural for us to assume that the people of Israel were thinking the same thing. We, we, our, our ruler is going to do just that, exactly what... He exactly what was done in the past is going to bring us out. We're going to have military conquest and success. We're going to devote ourselves to the Lord and see thriving peace across our land as God intended it to be. And instead, God gives the opportunity for eternal peace and being co-heirs with Jesus in an eternal kingdom and the promise of a new heaven and new earth that is yet to be and that we still anticipate, as Romans 8 would say, we groan and long for, waiting for redemption. And we have to come back to this place of uh, the greatest need that we have is an eternal one, not an earthly one. As much as our earthly needs may seem the most pressing, the greatest need we have is an eternal need, not an earthly one. And we have to stop and consider that. Because if we're looking for God in Christ to solve all of our earthly challenges and struggles, you're going to be waiting a very long time. And you're going to be really disappointed. But if your hope is in Christ, and you recognize that His reign as the servant king was accomplished on the cross and was finalized in His resurrection, then no matter what seasons we face, no matter what this earth throws at us, we know that our eternity is secure in Christ. Our eternity is secure in Jesus. And that's the authority we have to put in the driver's seat of our life. 
That's the authority we have to more so allow to be, not put in that place, because you have no ability to put him in that place. He's already accomplished that. To allow him to be the one to rule and reign in your life and to have the authority over who you are and what you do to fix your eyes on Jesus. So as we think about these things, I still come back to that last question. What, what are the faulty expectations that, you have, uh, that, that you've had uh, when it comes to surrendering your life to Christ? And whether you're listening to this and you've been someone who's been a follower of Jesus for a long time or you've, you're listening to this and you, you don't really know if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you still need to evaluate what your expectations are and then ask the question, are these expectations biblical or are they selfish? Are they personal? And in your process of navigating that, don't walk that journey alone. This is part of the reason God has given us local church communities. So wherever you're listening to this, we encourage you plug into a local church body where you can be a part of authentic community, a Bible teaching authentic community that is encouraging and walking with you on a journey to become more like Jesus, not more like yourself. You need to be reborn. Much to our culture's dismay, you, you, who you are is not who God wants you to be. Who you are is broken, sinful, and separated from God. Um, you need redemption. And as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, uh, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, a new creation is needed in you uh, in order for you to have that hope and promise of an eternal kingdom. And here's the good news. Uh, Jesus has accomplished what is needed to enter into that eternal kingdom. You simply need to receive the gift that's been given to you in Jesus. Receive that in Christ. And if there's any way we can help you walk in that journey, email us. Let us know. Again, uh, email office at cantonyfree.com and let us know if there's questions you have or wrestlings with this. And I really encourage any of you listening, make sure that you set aside time this coming weekend to celebrate with a local church body uh-huh. on Resurrection Sunday. And this is the pinnacle, the most important aspect of what we believe and what has brought us hope. Uh, because if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we're of all people most to be pitied, as the Apostle Paul would say. Um, so get excited about that and, and celebrating this. But then I challenge you beyond that, don't allow that to be the only time you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Let that be something we celebrate each day because it is the very hope of eternity that we've been given. Yeah, something uh, you can try and do real quick um, with number four. Write out a list. Do, take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle. On the left side, write out a list of what you what your expectations are. That's good. Then go through and read the Gospels. And on the right side, start writing what you pick out that, uh, that who Jesus is. And then see how those two things compare. Yeah. Yeah, and then what expectations you should have from what Jesus mm-hmm. teaches, both and. Yep. That's a great exercise. That would be a great personal study. If you are if you don't know what to do in your Bibles, um, go through and read with that intentionality in mind. So um, <clears throat> as we look to next week, uh, uh, we're gonna actually going to be at a conference. So yeah. we're, we're not going to be able to record uh, at least next week. Uh, potentially the following week we'll record two. And uh, catch up on that. But those of you listening, uh, we we want to let you know we'll be gone uh, next week. So specifically, Bobby Thornton. Yeah. Wanted one, to let you know that we're, <laughs> we're going to be gone. And um, uh, but we'll we'll definitely look forward to getting back and jumping back into scripture in the weeks ahead. So uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're gonna we're gonna call it a day. Father, thank you for your grace, and thank you for what you've done in Christ for us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. 
Uh, Lord, it's a gift, the greatest gift that's been given. And so today, pray that you would help us to evaluate our expectations versus biblically what is true and give us clarity and uh, focus on how we walk and live in light of this. And as we approach Resurrection Sunday, may you give us an anticipation and a joy as we remind ourselves of what is secured for us in the name of Christ. We pray this all through him, our Savior. Amen. Amen.